0: Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church, Owasso. Sermon podcast. Grace changes everything. Cover from 3.7 to 4.13. We're going to go back to some of the end of chapter 4. If you're able and you're willing, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Therefore... While the promise of entering His rest still stands, who have failed to reach it? For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because who have believed enter that rest, as He has said, as I swore in My wrath they shall not enter My rest. Spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, Come to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a sword in the words already quoted Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God gains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also Rested from his works, rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden to whom we must give account. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's Word stands forever. And this is Father, would you take these moments we have together as we open your word and would you change us by them? Amen. Jesus offers us true rest. Therefore, O oh church, strive to enter that rest. That's the point the author of Hebrews is trying to make in this portion of his argument, of his sermon, of his letter. Who understand all the note to these Jewish Christians who grew up in Judaism, who understand all the beautiful imagery and everything about Jesus is the true rest. So strive to enter that rest. After being um, in Tulsa for a dozen years is the dynamic that I often have somewhere along the way. They have been educated in some kind of theology that has pointed them to the gospel, that they have picked it like this. I know that I'm accepted by the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore I am to go and live a good life. But as you begin to talk with them and you begin to draw out what that means, They begin to give examples in their own life of their anxiety, of their exhaustion, of how though they say with their mouth, I know that God accepts me and therefore I'm to go and live a good life. What they really believe and what they really live out is actually the very opposite of that. I am a good person, and therefore, I know Jesus accepts me. And I don't know if that's true for you, but it's often true for me that I know that I am declared righteous because of the finished work of Jesus, and in Him and Him only, I can find my rest. I can cease from my strivings to please God because Jesus has provided everything for me. But in the subtleties of daily living, what I really believe is I believe that because I'm a good person, that Jesus accepts me. In fact, accepts me in proportion to how good of a person I am. And the reason that I know that is because I hear your prayer requests. I know how anxious you are. And I know how spiritually tired you are. And what the author of Hebrews tries to do in this passage is he just tries to blow open those categories for the Jews of the day who become Christians and who are falling back into the tendencies of Judaism to believe that God is pleased with them to the degree that they are doing these practices of obedience, love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. I mean, this was at the heart of the heart of the heart of what it means to preach the gospel in 2024 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It means to help Christians. Yes, Christians really believe that they are declared righteous by the Father through the work of the Son. And therefore, in light of that amazing truth, to thirst for His Word and to want to go and live it out. Because I know how hard it is to get those reversed. And so also did the Reformers in the 16th century. They knew, they knew that so many people had fallen prey to believing in some kind of legalistic righteousness, that they are holy as they do certain things. That Martin Luther, in one of the first hymns that he wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, tried to get it into the bloodstream of the Lutherans of the day. Did we in our own strength confide our strivings would be losings? We're not the right man, Jesus, on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. And the Luther is racking his brain. How do I put the right words on it? Lord of rest is his name. Lord Sabbath is his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. In Hebrews chapter 3, the author of Hebrews takes us back in order to take us forward. The first point that he makes is, number one, God's promised rest. God has promised his people rest, and he tells the story of, of Psalm 95. He says, today, if you hear his heart, don't harden your hearts as you did in the Meribah, in the rebellion, on the days of Mesa, of testing in the wilderness. What's he talking about? One of the greatest examples of disobedience in the Old Testament was when, when God had delivered the Israelites. Do you remember the story? You remember the story? Right? I mean, God gave Adam rest in the garden, and Adam blew it big time. He sinned, Right? and then what does he do then he then he, he he wipes the earth out genesis chapter 6 and he preserves eight noah and then the people begin to multiply and then and then they build a tower and jesus says to the to all those with one language you are running from what i have commanded you to do and I'm going to scatter you amongst the nations and confuse your languages and he did so and then he takes Abraham the son of a moon worshiper named Terah and he says to Abraham not because of anything Abraham brought to the table but because he set his love upon Abraham and he said Abraham I'm going to make a covenant promise to you I promise that you will have a great land seed many many children more than the stars of the sky or the sands on the sea And you will be a blessing to the nations. Do you remember that? He promised him rest. And so Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had how many sons? Twelve sons. That's right. The twelve tribes of Israel. One of those sons, Joseph, was sold into slavery. His brothers played a cruel trick on him, and then Joseph ended up in the slave trade of Egypt. And lo and behold, Joseph works his way up through by the interpretation of dreams. And then he rises up through the ranks of Egypt to become second in command of Egypt. And so when the global famine hit, where did the Israelites go? They came to Egypt. And his brothers came to Egypt begging for mercy amidst the famine. And Joseph says those famous words, what? You meant it for evil, remember? But God meant it, What? For good. And then God rose up a generation that forgot about Joseph. Pharaoh forgot about Joseph and he enslaved the Israelites. And then Moses was born. Moses, his mother didn't want Moses to be killed with the other children, and so she made a basket of reeds and she put Moses in the basket and floated him down the Nile River. And who caught Moses? But the daughter of Pharaoh. And Moses is raised as a prince of Egypt, educated with the, in the heights of Egyptian glory of the day. And Moses grows up, and he sees the Egyptians mistreating the Israelites, and he strikes an Egyptian, and then he flees, he flees to the wilderness for 40 years, where he has two sons. You Remember the story? And then in Exodus chapter 3, this is your story, right? Exodus chapter 3, there's a pillar of a fire and a bush that doesn't, consume the bush. And God speaks to Moses and says, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. And Moses removes his sandals and says, who is speaking to me? And the Lord says, I am who I am. Go back to Pharaoh. And so Moses goes back to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go as God commanded. And Pharaoh says what? No. Until the 10 plagues come and the 10th plague, the killing of the firstborn. Finally, Pharaoh says, you can go. And so as many as 603,000 men fled Egypt. And then what did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh changed his mind. And then he goes after them. And they come to the edge of the Red Sea, certain to be wiped off the face of the earth. And what does the Lord do? He provides again, he provides safe haven. And he says, I promised you, and I will be true to my word. And so the Red Sea parts. And all of Israel goes to the Red Sea. And the waters come down on the Egyptians. And then, and then they're in the wilderness. They have just been led through the Red Sea on dry land. And Exodus 15 and 16 and 17 says, the chief characteristic of these people who have been saved from so much is what? Murmuring. Complaining. Have you taken us out here to die, Moses? And so also to the church in this day and age, we look around the world and we say, look at all the pressure on the church. Look how hard it is to stand on moral issues. We're just getting crushed on social media. And the Lord says to us, have you forgotten that I'm a God of promise, O church? And so the author to the uh, Sermon of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews says, I want you, if you're going to find true rest, I want you to go back, to go forward. I want you to remember what it was like in the wilderness. And he takes Psalm 95, which is a psalm written by David, which starts out a psalm of praise and it ends up with a warning. And he says to them, Do not harden your hearts where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, but I was provoked by that generation, and I said they will always go astray in their hearts because they have not known my rest. 603,000 men, that's a lot of people if you add in the women and children, and that means that for 40 years... Right? If an entire generation was wiped out, because nobody entered the land in that generation except for two people. Right? Remember, God sent spies—Moses sent spies into the land, the twelve spies. Ten of them came back and said, the land that you tell us to go check out, God, there's giants in the land. There's no way. But two of them, who were they? Caleb and Joshua. They said, we can do it. And so, who were the two of that generation that got to go enter the land? Caleb and Joshua. Even Moses. Moses died seeing it, but never actually stepping foot in it. And so he said, I swear my wrath, they will not enter my rest. And for 40 years, if you do the math and it happened one by one, that means somebody died every 10 minutes for 40 years in that generation because they did not listen to God's promise. Do you? Last week, we looked at the verb where it says, take care, brothers, in verse 12, and then also in verse 13, but exhort one another all, uh, uh, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do you grow soft hearts? You encourage each other. That's how you grow tender hearts. Zechariah says that their hearts became like diamonds. They were so hard. And when you come to chapter 4, it says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, he says, do you want to enter that rest? Well, then you need to hear two things. You need to hear, first of all, a warning, and then you need to hear an encouragement. Because of God's promised rest, there is a warning and there is an encouragement. The warning is that you are to look at the past, and you are to see that in Joshua's day God had declared that no one over 20 years of age would enter into that land except for Joshua and Caleb. And it was a warning to us today to recognize that sin has consequences and hardened hearts has consequence for the life of a body of a people together. And so while I know that we feel like we're individual Christians, you know, we took vows together and those vows mean something. And so What we do in our own personal lives affects the body. The way that we raise our children together affects one another. That is not odd. That is normal Christianity, leaning into each other. This is why Acts chapter 2 says they, they shared so many things, because it was just natural. When you're doing life together, when you're raising your kids, when it's hard, when you come in and you're just wiped out, you say to an older brother or sister, hey. You have a relationship with them and you say, would you mind helping watch my kiddos this morning? Because man, I just need some extra encouragement. You look to the past. It also says you look to the present. In 4.7, it says, again, he, the Holy Spirit, points to a certain day today. Saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Psalm ninety-five, verse seven: Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then God would have spoken of another; would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains for us a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You don't just look back and see the story of the Old Testament, but you also you look at today as King David did, and he said. I know that happened a long time ago, but I'm telling you today, today, O people of Israel, he said as the king, as he wrote this psalm, rest in God's promises. That was the context of Psalm 95. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. It's not just about resting in God's promises that he gave to Abraham, but it's also about resting in the Sabbath rest that God experienced when he created the world, just as God rested from his works. O oh, Christian, so also are we to rest from our strivings to please him, that we might find our righteousness only in him. There is a future rest as well. Today, it includes the time between David and the time that Hebrews was written, and even into our day. Notice in chapter 3, verse 7, the very beginning of what Joe read for us earlier. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. He is the one who is saying these things through his servants like David. And we are invited to enter into the fullness of his promise Even today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. He says in verse 11, therefore, since there's a warning to us, therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. In the story of Numbers chapter 14, which is the story of the rebellion, the Story that you find in Exodus 15 through 17, which tells of the action that happened in real time of their rebellion. It's meant to be a cautionary tale for you. It's meant to be a reminder to you that it's easy for our hearts to grow hard. So what is it that we take from Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through verse 13 of chapter 4. Well, number one, you recognize that the Old Testament for us in the wilderness is a cautionary tale. It reminds us of the dangers of unbelief and the importance of trusting in God's promises. And we also can be prone to forget God's promises, can't we? Not only is it a cautionary tale, but secondly, the wilderness rebellion teaches us that actions have consequences. Rebellion and disobedience has real live consequences here and now. And you see this even in your own family of people in your own family who have walked away from the faith, even some of you in this room who are asking questions. And I just wanna say, yes, well done. Ask the questions, bring the questions to us. We want to be a church where you can ask your questions. Ask them, let's talk. A rebellion has consequences. In our own lives, we must recognize that our rebellion against God's commands leads to spiritual and relational lethargy and exhaustion. And you've seen this in your own life as well. The Wilderness Rebellion serves as a reminder for the need for us to have humility and contentment. The Israelites grumbled. They complained in their time in the wilderness. They desired things that were not in line with God's plan for them. And the chief mark of the people of God in this generation was that they always complained against Moses. Some of you have young children who may have the gift of complaining, and you know how exhausting it is. How patient God is with you. And if you could see your future the way God sees it, our complaining would be turned to profound humility and rejoicing. Because His plan for your life is far bigger than your understanding of your future. And He loves you with an undying love, a love that did die on the cross and rose again on the third day. And he helps you stand on the shoulder of giants, not people who lived years ago in the 1980s, but people who lived millennia ago, who have walked where you have walked and whose lives are now for us cautionary tales, reminders that our actions have consequences, encouragements for us to both be humbled and to be content in His promises to us. And most importantly, as with every passage of the Old Testament, the wilderness rebellion points us to our need for our Savior, one who can come into our world in the midst of all of our complaining, and He can pull us up and point us to the greater day to come when He says, I know that you've been promised rest, and I know that today you're tired. And I know that one day, someday, when you feel like you have everything in order in your life, your retirement fund is where it should be, your job is the way it should be, you walk into worship and you just get to plug things in and you get to lead worship, it's gonna be awesome. It's a shadow of the rest that is to come. Lord's Sabbath is his name and from age to age the same. And so he gives us a warning. It's a cautionary tale, but he also gives us encouragement. And his encouragement is found in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. It's interesting, isn't it? Let us strive. How do you strive as a Christian? You strive by going back to his living and active word. Verse 12. You strive by coming again to recognize that God, through His Word, pierces your heart to help you recognize that you need to walk in faith and repentance even today as much as you did the first day that you believed. It's to say to you, oh husband, I know you're tired after a long day of work and you should still love your wife as Christ loves the church even when it comes to great sacrifice for you. I know how tired you are, wife, and yet you should still love your husband. And you should submit to Him as we're called to do in Ephesians. This is God's Word. It's to be… It is beautiful. It is not taxing. It is not burdensome. And He turns our duty into a choice that is a glad response to all the promises that He's given to us. He says in verse 12 something interesting. He says, the Word of God is living and active. Isn't that interesting? It's living. For the Word of God to be living, zon gar ho Anybody here named Zoe? Life, that's the Greek word. It is alive. And how much more alive is God's Word than when it took on flesh in Jesus himself, who is the living Word of God, who by his Spirit has left us the written Word. It is active, in our gaze It's from where we get the English word energy. It is alive and it's full of energy it's powerful it's effective it is engaged in work Jeremiah 23:29 says it is not is not my word like fire declares the Lord is it not like a hammer that breaks the rocks into pieces God's word is full of energy it's active the classic Greek uh, term for, for this word of energy, or it being active, is almost always used in medical contexts. God's Word is active to heal you spiritually, just like the active physician heals you physically. And God's Word becomes the great physician to point you to the living Word of God, the Lord Jesus Himself. It is sharper than any two edged sword. A Machaira was a short battle weapon that was used. It has a slightly curved blade. It was popular by people who were in the Calvary. It was double edged, and so it cut both ways. The Reformers used to say God's Word also cuts both ways, it cuts toward those of you who are licentious and just go on and sin, that grace may abound, and it cuts toward those of you who are legalists, because it cuts you to the heart to remind you of the truth of the gospel, that you have been freed from the law and its demands, because they've been fulfilled in Jesus, and yet also you ought to walk in holiness. God's Word cuts both ways. And Jesus said, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a what? A machaira. I came to bring a sword. Isn't that interesting? Why would he say that? Because when the author of Hebrews is trying to figure out what is God's Word like, he says, ah, He's, he came to bring God's Word. He's pointing us back to Jesus, who said, I came to bring a sword. What is that? It is the Word of God, living and written. That divides soul from spirit and joint from marrow. And it even discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Which is why some of you have a hard time in your disciplines of reading God's Word. Because it reveals to us so much. We just can't take it. And the way that you are able to absorb the truth of God's Word again and again and again is by coming to worship together. By encouraging each other with the good news that we are striving through our repentance and faith to become the kind of countercultural community that God calls us to be together, centered on His Word, which is sharp, active, and it is living, so that we who are living in the wilderness of our day might be able to find our true rest in Him. Hallelujah. What might it take in this church for us to live in that way? God's Word is piercing. It doesn't pierce physical flesh, but it pierces spiritual flesh. It pierces the heart. And may we, O Trinity Presbyterian Church, be the kind of church that is so humbled by God's promises that we both heed the warning that He has given to us in the example of forefathers who have gone before us, but also standing on His Word that is living and active, encourages one another all the more as we see the great day approaching to find our rest in Jesus's finished work. And even this morning, for those of you who have never placed your faith in the gospel, the declaration of the good news is that you can find rest in His finished work, not in your strivings, but in Christ's finished work for you. So that in a moment, when you come to this table, you can come to this table as one who has been fully forgiven and a righteousness has been granted to him, by which you are completely covered, not by your own good works, but by Jesus's on your behalf. So let us strive to enter that rest, that we may not harden our hearts, and that we may find indeed our rest in Him now as a shadow of the future rest we shall enjoy forever in His presence, as we enjoy Him forever, just as He promised.